Welcome, I'm Chris Fleming. I'm Rob Lott, and you're listening to Health Affairs this week. So, Rob, uh, today I thought maybe we'd talk a little bit about telehealth, and that's obviously been a subject that's been in the news a lot lately. And uh, just I'm curious, you know, without probing too much, a lot of folks have had uh, an experience with telehealth for the first time during the pandemic, and I wondered if you were one of them and uh, if you'd maybe talk a little bit about uh, your own experience with the subject. Yeah, this last year was definitely the first time I've uh, been able to take advantage of a telehealth visit. And it was a strange, strange experience. I think it was a little awkward for both me and the doctor. who were both used to, you know, meeting in that small, tiny room. And um, to have the, the sort of screen in between us was a little strange. Um, and for both of us, I think. But uh, it was a necessary intervention uh in terms of the um the platform we were using to connect and at the end of the day i was able to you know get get a diagnosis and um and some help from the clinician and you know left left the encounter um you know better off than when i started so um all in all it was a pretty positive experience and it seems like that's the um the feedback I've been hearing from other people about their experiences as well. Obviously, it's not ideal, but it's been a new experience for a lot of people. Well, I'm glad it worked out for you. Uh, I I can't claim on my own part to have had personal experience. Uh, I did have a little bit of a uh, interesting uh, experience where I, we tried. My wife and I tried to help uh, some elderly friends uh, with a telehealth experience, and they were having none of it. It's like we're gonna <laughs> see the doctor in person, or we're not gonna see the doctor at all. So, <laughs> yeah, so uh, obviously our, our experiences are our own, but um, I think there are, uh, you know, likely uh, a few data points in what has been a profound trend over the last year. Earlier this week, we published a package of five articles on Health Affairs blog in which the authors all raised and tried to answer some big questions about the future of telehealth. And so what was the sort of the before times version of telehealth? How did it look before COVID-19 arrived and changed everything? Well, you know, prior to COVID-19, as you say, which changed, uh, pretty much changed everything, the use of telehealth, it was there uh, in the U.S., but it was relatively limited. There were uh, a lot of payment restrictions uh, as compared to in-person visits. There were certainly a lot of site uh, restrictions where uh, programs like Medicare would only reimburse for certain instances if someone was in a rural area or even, you know, even then if they were at, at certain sites that were deemed eligible. So it was a relatively limited enterprise. Okay. So then COVID arrives. What happened at that point? Well, I mean, basically it exploded. Uh, uh, a little bit out, out of necessity. I mean, it's, it's, there are people have talked about 20 years of, uh, 20 years of evolution in 20 days, essentially. The uh, uh, pandemic greatly increased the use of virtual physician visits because you know, no one could go or meant it was very hard to go in person. Uh, for instance, in one of the blog posts that, that you mentioned, uh, Francis, who Jay Crossan, as everybody knows him, was a longtime uh, Kaiser Permanente executive, former MedPAC chair. Uh, he cited an estimate that televisits during 2020 were up by 50%, uh, and that 20% of all physician office visits during 2020 will have been televisits. 
Wow. So some of this was out of necessity, right? Physicians closed their offices, hospitals canceled elective procedures. And so all of these providers had to pivot dramatically. What also happened was that, that policymakers through legislation, through regulation, uh, relaxed some of those restrictions that we were talk about, or talking about earlier. Very importantly, they established uh, payment parity where you would get paid as a provider the same amount for a telehealth visit uh, as you would for an in-person visit. Yeah, it was actually pretty impressive. Um, I might even say surprising how quickly these behemoth institutions were able to make a change. And so now as we begin to see the end of COVID-19 and the public health emergency, uh, the debate over how to structure telehealth going forward is is beginning. This is really maybe a, a bit of a hinge point, I think. Is this uh, just a blip or the start of something new? Will we go back to the way things were? Is that even an option? Yeah, that's right, Rob. I mean, uh, Crossan, uh, who we were talking about earlier in his blog post, refers to uh, the coming conflict over televisits uh, in the title. Some observers, he notes, like MedPAC, uh, who obviously it's a very they they have a very important opinion here. Uh, they've suggested caution uh, over continuing to this this liberalizing trend uh, over telehealth regulation and payment. Uh, but Crossan says, you know, many just think the genie's out of the bottle that. Uh, Telehealth is is really here to stay, and his post and the others in the package uh, just raise a number of questions about how we're going to proceed. Right. So uh, I was thinking maybe for the rest of our time here today, we could do this uh, David Letterman style. Like, uh, ladies and gentlemen, tonight we have the top 10 unanswered questions about the future of telehealth. Well, I like that. Uh uh, although I'm afraid that after we after we explain to all the younger folks who David Letterman is, uh, <laughs> we might not have time for the top ten. Okay, uh, why don't we start with three? Here we go, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for the top three unanswered questions about the future of telehealth. Okay, uh, <laughs> question number one. Uh, if I remember from the home office in Sioux City, Iowa, or whatever it was, uh, should Medicare continue payment parity for telehealth and in-person visits? Great question, Chris. Um, so one of our posts uh, from an assistant professor at the University of Michigan, Chad Elemutel, he uh, wrote in his post that there are several uh, reasonable arguments against payment parity, right? One, uh, relative to in-person care, it's plausible that telehealth requires less clinical effort. Two, care delivered by telehealth may have less value than in-person care in the sense that it may be more likely to be ineffective or inefficient, uh, potentially. Other uh, arguments uh, are, are that telehealth may have a greater potential for overuse than uh, in-person care. And finally, uh, he notes that someone uh, might argue that practice expenses associated with delivering telehealth may be uh, lower than in-person care. Well, that's right. But then he goes ahead actually and, and rejects these arguments. Uh, he says, for instance, that clinical effort uh, for an outpatient visit is defined by factors that aren't really about the, the nature of the visit, whether, whether it's in-person, excuse me, or telehealth. Uh, but things like the clinical effort uh, by the complexity of the patient's diagnosis, the volume of data reviewed, uh, risk of management options, time spent in patient care, 
Uh, he talks about how the quality of care is not defined by the mode of delivery. Uh, high value care, low value care exists in tele telehealth and in-person visits alike. Third, he says that uh, the evidence suggests that telehealth has served as a substitute for in-person care uh, rather than adding new visits. And finally, telehealth doesn't always uh, yield lower practice expenses compared to in-person care. There are sort of costs and savings in both areas. Yeah, real, real murky uh, case there and a lot of questions still yet to be answered. Uh, okay, here we go. Question number two. What about the interaction between telehealth and payment reform? First of all, uh, there's some, uh, as Crossan notes, uh, people have talked about uh, embedding telehealth payment uh, in what are known as alternative payment models, an effort to get away from paying uh, for volume, you know, to get away from paying more for doing more. Doing that as a way of mitigating the risk of overuse of telehealth. A uh, good example uh, that he talks about is this framework that's been proposed by the Alliance for Community Health Plans. And we'll put uh, that and, and some of the other posts that we've talked about in the show notes so people can refer to them later. Uh, but the interaction also works the other way, as Amal Navafe and uh, Josh Lau write in their blog post. Telehealth can enable us to pursue payment reform and care delivery reform more effectively. Right. So an example of this might be um, implementing population health management um, tools, often those efforts focus on a really narrow slice of the population because of limited resources. But maybe telehealth can vastly broaden the slice of the population that clinicians can reach with these tools. Yeah. Well, and let's do uh, let's do one more question here. Question number three. Uh, what are some of the other factors, uh, policies, and maybe obstacles uh, affecting the implementation of telehealth? Great question, Chris. Um, so one factor uh, that we covered in our pages is uh, physician licensure. The fact that it's done by individual states. So a physician that's licensed in one state is not necessarily licensed in another. And that could create an obstacle. I think we've seen it as an obstacle to conducting telehealth visits across state lines. And this was raised by Joseph Liss and co-authors who say that the solution is for states to mutually recognize each other's physician licenses. This system works well for nurses, too, they point out. Uh, there is an existing uh, what's called an interstate medical licensure compact uh, which is sort of a, an attempt uh, to make it easier for, for physicians to practice medicine across state borders. But uh, according to our blog authors, at least, there's a lot of cumbersome procedures that are involved and take up has been limited. Right. So uh, finally, before we wrap up, um, we should also note another policy obstacle. When the public health emergency is over, there's a risk that Medicare will revert to its uh, pre-pandemic restrictions on paying for telehealth outside of those very specific rural areas and locations that you mentioned earlier. And this would obviously have a pretty serious impact on the future of telehealth if Medicare goes in the in the other direction. Yeah, I mean, that's right. Kyle Thompson of the AMA, he wrote about this in his blog post, and he specifically urges Congress to remove uh, this restriction for the long term. Uh, and prevent Medicare beneficiaries from losing access to telehealth services uh, at the end of the COVID health public health emergency. I mean, that what had happened is that it had been waived during the public health emergency, but unless Congress acts, he points out, 
uh, that waiver will expire and we'll go back to the restrictive environment that we were in before. All right. Well, that was uh, three big questions. I think that's probably a good place to stop. Chris, thanks for uh, going on that uh, thrilling journey with me. <laughs> Obviously, um, we've raised the questions uh, and the answers are still out there. And to some extent, we can continue the research and explore and uh, debate and discuss them. Um, and it will be interesting to see how everything unfolds in the months and really years ahead. Definitely will be, and it's uh, job security for us. And uh, we would uh, encourage uh, listeners, if you like what you heard, uh, subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcast. And thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you later, Chris. 